Welcome to CPP Chat, the most well-tested podcast for C++ developers by C++ developers. Before we get started, I'd like my fellow host John to read this week's disclaimer. Thank you, Phil. All right, this week's disclaimer. Information presented on this episode is considered public information, unless otherwise noted, and may be distributed or copied. However, attribution is requested as defined in the Creative Commons Attribute Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. CPP Chat does not claim to be an authority in the field of software testing, and the use of any information on this site is at the owner's own risk. If your software crashes or if your project fails or you do not succeed because of, the, because of following any of our guidelines, CPP Chat will not be held responsible. On the other hand, if your software excels or your project succeeds or if you get promoted because of following any of our guidelines, CPP Chat should be acknowledged when you receive your accolades. Thank you. So how are we doing, Phil? Doing okay here, thank you. Yes, excellent. All right, we have uh, we have a couple of guests who have not been on before. Uh, one of them is uh, Martin uh, Holfaneski. I got it. I hope I got it. <laughs> um, he's joining us from Prague, and he's been collaborating with Phil on Catch. Uh, Martin, does uh, does Phil torture you with puns the way he does me? Uh, no, usually he's not, he doesn't. He doesn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I am so disappointed. I'll do it a different way. <laughs> he does it a different way. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. Um, so how long have you been working with, on, on Catch? Uh, it's year and a half now. Year and a half, right? And we were just establishing that Catch is about eight years old or eight or nine years old, something like that. I actually yeah. don't know. You have to ask Phil. I think it's going to be eight years old in uh, December. I see. Okay. All right. I actually pushed out the first release uh, while my wife was in hospital with our newborn twins, so I know the exact date. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Outside of visiting time. I was going to say you might not want to mention (laughs) to your wife that that's how you keep track, but... um... Okay, also joining us uh, for the first time in the show is Kevlin Henney, who, uh, while on the Standards Committee, proposed long care instead of wide care tea. For this, I am... Kevlin is is my idol, and I I am (laughs) starstruck to have him on the show. Um, If you've not heard uh, Kevlin give a formal presentation, you've really missed out. Unfortunately, uh, Kevlin has never spoken at C++ Now or CppCon. What what do I have to do to get you to show up at a conference? Um, I'm I'm open for bribery um, <laughs> and all kinds of things that uh, seem to be coming back into fashion these days. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just it's a question of calendrical alignment, and mine is very poor at the moment. I really have tried to make an effort this year, and we kind of came close, but that didn't work out. And, right, no, but we, as we, we talked noted, about uh, we talked about yeah, doing flats actually. Yeah. yeah, that's right, and that's just and I'm actually in the US at the time, so it's it's. Uh, um, but yes, unfortunately, that that's not going to work out. Um, and um, oh yes, but uh, yeah, we were discussing. Uh, I was actually at C plus plus now before it was C plus plus now. So I guess BoostCon is C plus plus then by definition. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was at the first BoostCon, and for anybody who is on the um, Slack channel and is wondering about the story, it was the travel story of me getting there and turning up. <laughs> 
30 minutes before the end of the workshop, the full day workshop I was supposed to be delivering with Jeff Garland. So I came in and quietly sat at the back before Jeff noticed that I had actually turned up, having dumped him with the hardest <laughs> chapters and material in the morning. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, hell, of a, a hell of a travel story. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I have been there in the rarefied atmosphere of Aspen uh, and I'm sure I will return. But again, it's a matter of timing. But yeah, yeah, it will happen. But now, these days, I want to become a maintainer of catch now that I've discovered that Martin doesn't get tortured by puns. I think that's what you... Because everybody else gets tortured by puns, and they are not maintainers of catch. So therefore, you know, I'm going to use some fairly... Not exactly robust logic to deduce that to escape the puns, you need to become a catch maintainer. What a great way of recruiting for an open source project. Exactly, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I might have to change my policy on that. You're an evil genius. <laughs> so we were actually talking about uh, the roots of catch. Is that where we want to start? Oh, we, we should actually, we have a couple of announcements. Let's get those out of the way yeah. so we can talk about uh, catch and testing, right? Um, uh, a Pacific uh, Plus Plus, tickets are open, CppCon, tickets are open. The schedule is up. Um, did we do anything special for CppCon? Oh, well, there's a couple of interesting things being cooked, but we can't talk about those yet. Um, meeting C++, tickets are open, schedule release. And I think the schedule is up for Embed. It is, embed yes. Day as well. Yeah. All right. Um, and C++ on C, uh, tickets are up. Um, and uh, I, you're in the middle of reviews. Are you still soliciting reviewers? Yes, uh because, as I think we mentioned last week, I was overwhelmed by the response to the call for speakers. I had over 100 uh, speaker submissions. Definitely going to need to expand my review team. So uh, if anyone's interested in, in helping out with reviews, I have some for you. Please let me know. So over 100 reviews is a, is a huge number of reviews. Um, That's half the CPP con, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Half that, as many as we would get at... Uh, C++ now. So there's incredible interest, at least by speakers, in the conference. Uh, it may turn out that only speakers show up. I don't know. But but the speakers really want to be at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> they have stuff to say. They have stuff to say. And they want to say it on the White Cliffs of Dover. Um, and let's see, also ADC, the Audio Developer Conference tickets are open. Uh, there were a couple of news announcements that I caught my eye this week. One is um, from Sar Raz, who announced that uh, Clang Concept is now feature complete. So you can either build the um, uh, experimental version of Clang, or you can actually play with it on Godbolt and test out concept features. So those of you who are itching to do that, it's now available for you to play with. Um, it's not just a concept then, anymore. It's not just a concept anymore, that's right. Uh, and then in the library news, um, Google released something called Filament. And I, I saw someone pointed from someone from Google pointed out, okay, this isn't an official Google product, <laughs> but Filament is actually a rendering engine. And I think its intention is Android, but it actually runs Android, Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. So it's, it's in C. And check out the show notes and at least go to the uh, follow the link. Because even if you're not the least bit interested in the engine, you should look at some of the images that are rendered because uh, they're, they're kind of kind of striking at least I was I was kind of impressed so. yeah I can definitely vouch for that 
I had a look myself. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. So, uh, those are the news things that I think... Is there anything else we need to say before we dive in? Uh, only that you, you glossed over my biggest news of the oh, week, which was sorry. that the, the ticket sales are open for C++ on C. Yeah. Uh, that, that's big news for me. may not be uh, for everyone, <laughs> but anyone that's interested in going, you can now go and see what the um, prices are. And, and I, think, I think the reason is I was thinking that they were open during the last meeting, but this is the first time they've no. been open. Okay, yeah, they right. yesterday. Sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, absolutely big news. Uh, so if you can make it there in February... Uh, you're going to have you're going to have a great program to pick from very clearly. Yeah, so the um, the early bird pricing will last until uh, the speaker selections are made. So you'll be getting a reduced price um, without knowing who the speakers are going to be. But I can definitely tell you that we've got such a great lineup that um, it's not going to disappoint. I think it's going to be a safe bet. Was that uh, was that design intentional? The uh, the lining, yes, yeah. Yeah, okay, all right. We did that at, at CPPCon as well, um, but the first year it wasn't really intentional. It was just kind of an accident, and then I realized, oh, that's kind of interesting that we're giving a price break to people who are willing to take the conference on, on its faith, uh, which was a bigger deal the first year because... Yeah. Yeah, but right, now, which is why I think it's worth mentioning that. You know, we don't have a yeah. track record, but we, we've, we've got all the good speakers, I think. You don't have a track record, but you've got a promise of good record tracks. There you go. That's how you yeah, start. Go. Okay. Yes. You've just disqualified yourself for maintaining catch. <laughs> you can't climb back, apparently. Well, you set the entry bar low, but I went lower. Oh, disappointing. Yeah. So talking All about right. that, that's that's a good segue actually, because um, sure, in a, in a very real sense, Kevlin was conceptually a maintainer of catch before there was a catch because uh, some of the core ideas of Catch were actually stolen uh, from, from Kevlin, uh, well, one of his uh, proof-of-concept projects. Um, I, I went to see one of his, his talks on it. Um, we'll, we'll put a link to, to my write-up of it uh, and a link to the video in the show notes. But um, maybe, um, maybe you want to tell us about that, Kevlin. Yeah. Um, it was the thing that the talk was rethinking unit testing in C++, and I did a kind of a version of it in January 2010, but the one where it all came together was actually the one that uh, you saw, Phil, was um, uh, the uh, it was ACCU London uh, Skills Matter in uh, May 2010. Uh, and it's a talk I did without slides because I wanted to use code and just sort of put up bullet points on an editor. Um, but it was one based on the kind of the typical way that many C++ developers might go about it. And having both taught um, unit testing uh, in, a, in a variety of languages, but also then seen it in practice and mispractice. I mean, people have so many different interpretations of how to go about this, but it also turns out people have many different habits that they cling to. And there are certainly a lot of thinking habits in the C++ world um, that uh, sort of I noticed was slightly different to uh, other languages. And I was... Sort of, I was frustrated because I kept thinking, well, the C++ testing landscape does not seem to be very rich. It's sort of a, a lot of people are doing the um, JUnit hand-me-downs. And JUnit itself is a hand-me-down from Smalltalk. So the SUnit hand-me-down. So JUnit's the not quite right version of a Smalltalk unit testing framework, which is, was actually better uh, from what I can tell. 
and it kind of gets borrowed down. And you end up with something, by the time it got into C++, you've got stuff like CPP unit, but also things that are were similarly inspired, uh, even if they didn't share the genetics of it. And they were quite... They weren't very expressive. They didn't feel very idiomatic. They looked like a bad port of Java. In other words, missing out all the features that would allow you to do a good job in Java, such as reflection, um, missing all of those out. And you ended up with this meager subset that wasn't really idiomatic C++. And it wasn't really idiomatic Java. It wasn't idiomatic anything. And when you came to express your tests, then people had a very constrained way of thinking about it. And they would end up with very short test names, um, just thinking of them as just ordinary identifiers. Uh, and not a very expressive um, assertion vocabulary. And although we did have boost test uh, kicking around at the time, again, that one had a particular philosophy that was very, uh, what I would call flat. In other words, it's based on functions, which is much more idiomatic. Um, But the way that I think about tests is much more nested. It's the idea that you are, um, you group tests together and you want that grouping to be a first-class citizen. It may not be a class, but it may be something else. But I'd also noticed that when I was teaching, if I told people, if, you, if I used the word function and got people thinking in terms of function, they would normally revert to function naming habits. But if you told them, this is a name, write it out in English and then throw the underscores in later, think of it like that it started shifting them to a much more expressive space. And I thought the most expressive space you can have is strings. And I'd seen this in a number of other testing frameworks, particularly some of the uh, BDD frameworks that were popping up in the um, late noughties. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way of doing this. And I prototype something in uh, JavaScript. Can I say JavaScript on this show without getting thrown (laughs) off for swearing? I don't know. That's it. Two strikes Um, and you're out. Uh, yeah, so hey, that language. Um, yeah, so what am I talking about JavaScript? We're, we're talking about programming here. Um, so anyway, I did it in JavaScript. I did a, I, I came to, came up with an approach, a lightweight approach in JavaScript. It was very descriptive, and I thought, oh, I wonder if I can do this in C And it took a little bit of kicking the language, and eventually realised that if we just said, what do I want it to look like before we started saying, oh, I've got functions and classes, where do we start? And that idea of creating nested structures, and I so then the challenge was nested structures that have string descriptors rather than identifiers or anything like that. Let's think a little bit outside the block. And it was a case of like, how do I make this work? Um, and so that was the, the basis for that. And the basis for that was dreamed up, I dreamt that up on the approach path to Heathrow, um, on, a, on a return flight to the UK. Um, I knew we'd I get working. a travel story in here. Yeah, you knew, I was going to get a travel <laughs> story in there. And then I dr- driving home from Heathrow, I live in Bristol, so that's a decent drive. Um, I, I worked out most of the rest of the details, uh, which is why the original testing framework um, was called LHR um, Heathrow. Uh, because I, 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 I like airport codes. so um, And it seemed a suitable, you know, three uh, uh, three character identifier that uh, nobody else was really using. Um, so that was the basis of that. And I just wanted in that talk to kind of explore the different ways that people did this. What's, what about a, just a bunch of assertions? What about functions? Um, what about functions with a little bit of macro help to auto-register? And I wanted to build this one up. And there are a couple of other things I threw in there as well. But I sort of said, and how do I... Re- these, these are looking from the language upwards, but how do I go at it from a de- another point of view? And so then you emailed me, Phil, after that, you know, um, asking for the code. And as, as it's a proof of concept, I had <laughs> just go, yeah, go with it. See what you can do with it. I gave it out to a few people I know, a company that were using it internally, and 
you know um but really i my job was my job there was done you did all the hard work you know it was i i, I did i did the thinking bits the um the uh, the abstract bit you did the concrete bit uh but it was that idea of i wanted to get as expressive as possible and i wanted the other aim was to try and reduce um assertion vocabulary because we end up if you anybody who ends up using almost any testing framework ends up having to learn a family of assertions um, and they have to learn the little quirks of the assertion frameworks and, and you know is this you know how is this one spelt is it uh, and i just thought couldn't i at least reduce it mostly to one assert and given that most asserts for, for equality then what about doing something like a, a capture using a ridiculously high precedence operator to pull that out and then reconstruct the actual expression um, uh, at runtime. So that was a that was a, that was a, a bit of fun just trying to explore that. Um, but yeah, that was that was the origin story of that one. Um, and I've I've since messed about with a couple of other kind of frameworks and they've ended up with airport codes as well. I think that might be a thing, but uh, I can't use Stansted because that's STD. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I have used I have used Gatwick LGW and I'm on, currently on uh, London City Airport LCY. Um, so. so- yeah. Have you been following the evolution of catch? Do you think it? it you think it catches? If I can, if I can throw my own fun. No, in that's there, not even close to Phil Standard. That's not even close. You know, I'm, come on, I'm sorry. Yeah, come catch up. Of that. Uh, I've got to catch up. Okay. Um, I try. I try. I try. <laughs> <laughs> try and catch. There's something in there, you know. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, something exceptional. Um, yeah, on and off. Every now and then, I dip in, uh, dip in and out, and catch two is kind of. Um, can we do this without any? I was about to say it caught my attention. Can we do this without any catch related <laughs> puns? I don't think it's actually possible. <laughs> That's why you chose it, Phil, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's not just the language; it's it's the English as well. Um, yeah, so I've been following it on and off, and I and you know every now and then there's something that kind of pulls me in. Um, uh, so, for example, when Phil added um, the. Uh, constructs to support a more uh, BDD-friendly style for some people who are coming in from BDD frameworks, uh, having a, having basically sort of a scenario given when then that makes it feel very familiar. What's, B- what's BDD? Uh, behavior-driven development. Depending on who uh-huh. you talk to, um, BDD is either TDD done right, um, or it is really a way of uh, a bigger picture that takes you into unit testing, but also starts from the outside. Um, and the requirement space as well. So a much deeper slice um, through uh, that. And, starting, starting with use cases, is that what you're saying? Starting yeah, yeah. With... basically user stories and, and the same structure. We kind of, there's this curious thing that we keep finding. There's these, this kind of um, uh, rule of three, this uh, three-act play structure to a lot of test cases. Um, and in classic TDD, people often refer to it as a range act assert arrange set up your state arrange the objects of interest do the action that you really want to focus on in this test so everything else is set up then the action of interest and then you assert so you've got the three a's so a lot of people call it three a's um dan north when he set up bdd um back sort of circa 2003 2004 his motivation for doing so is slightly to get away from the idea of testing as kicking a thing does it work and trying to be more expressive, focus on the behavior. And he wanted to shift from conventional testing terminology. Um, so hence, he spoke of behaviors rather than tests, um, specifications instead of suites. Uh, and he shifted the vocabulary, so it got you thinking about what is this thing, whether it be an object or a software system as a whole, 
what is this thing? What do I want from it? What behavior would I like from it? Whereas I think as developers, we often think from the inside out. It's just like, okay, I can see how I'm going to implement this. I've, I've got the algorithm. I've got the representation. And that is half the truth. But the challenge is somebody's going to use this. Somebody needs to reason about it. What does it look like from the outside? And so very much anchoring his perspective in that. So BDD has a... It clearly has an overlap with the TDD world and the unit testing world, but uh, sometimes people think of it in terms of acceptance test-driven testing, uh, much more bigger picture user stories and so on. Um, and But I, I regard it as a continuum, and it was exactly that kind of thinking that I think is comfortable when people sort of see the given when then and realize it's, it's isomorphic with a range act assert, and actually it fits with the classic uh, Tony Hoare triple of precondition action post-condition here is the thing as we set it up here is a thing of interest and here is what we're expecting or requiring afterwards there's a kind of it's the same structure and uh, i found that uh, i found it's a very comfortable way of um leading people into that thinking how do you rather than i'm trying to poke my code to see if it works that doesn't necessarily give you a maintainable test whereas if i say if i give you a narrative then then that that works very well and then that people find that easier to access so it's a a question of communication so i think i think i I kind of misdirected you by throwing that question at you but you we were talking about oh sorry i was supposed to say uh, catch two yes and i also saw phil's excellent suggestion excellent presentation on catch two at uh meetings up at c plus plus just before christmas yes all right um i think that i mean one of the one of the observations i have is that that this testing revolution that you've been talking about getting people to think about test-driven development and bdd it I think that this is a situation where the legacy and, and history of C++ is what hurts us. Because if you were inventing a new language today, you're creating your own new language. It wouldn't really matter what it is, whether it's a, an interactive scripting language or a new way of doing systems programming. But if you were doing it today, all your demos of the language, all your tutorials, everything would revolve around good testing practice. And in fact, it's likely there would be features in the language to support good testing. Yeah. And... C++ just predates our recognition, which is which is silly. You would think that we would have caught on to this very, very early, but um, it, 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 it predates this. And so we don't have a culture in C++ yeah. of tests first, designing for testability, these kinds of things. And I, I think that's much to our decrement, a, a detriment. As I said, if you were any, any modern language, any language that's I shouldn't say modern language. I think C++ is a modern language, but it's not a, it's not a new language. Mm. And I think a new language today, anyone talking about presenting, how do I use this language? How do I do anything in this language? The tutorials and even you know, the language itself as it's delivered to you and you install it, the first thing you're going to do is run a bunch of test suites and things like that. We just, we just don't have that ethos. And yeah. I confess to this. You know, I, I remember way back when I was a working engineer trying to force myself to think about, well, maybe let's do a test-first kind of approach. And even when I bought into that, I failed a few times because it was such an alien approach to the way we did things. And it wasn't because anybody pushed back or anybody disagreed. It was just, it's not, it wasn't the culture. It's culture. I think culture really is, um, for me, that was one of the recognitions. Uh, Moving from one language to another, one language culture, one conference to another, you start seeing, uh, it's cultural, Um, there is that notion. I remember um, 
uh, let's jump in the time machine, go back to 2005, C++ Connections as uh, a Las Vegas. And there are a couple of things there I thought were interesting. One, I did a session on TDD there. I know, I had 30, 35 people in the room. And I said, who here writes unit tests for their code? Two people put their hands up. I was one of them. John Lakos was the other. <laughs> and he's writing the, you know, he's been writing the book for a very long time uh, on this book. But, <laughs> but the point is that I think you can pre-order it on Amazon now. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is that with that was it. That was the two guys in the room who were doing this, and there was no lack of intelligence or experience in the room. It's a cultural right, thing, right. and therefore, and cultures have. Cultures have inertia. They, they, they have a depth to them, which is one of the reasons we like them, but they also have an inertia. And that was a, that was a very, very strange problem. But when we look back at the history of these things, we, it's slightly surprising that some things didn't take. So, for example, um, people often associate refactoring, which is, you know, in the recent years, has started to make, make an inroad, proper sensible inroads into C++ world. But people often associate it with Java. But the original refactoring work was done by Bill Opdyke in 1990 on C++. That was the origin story of that. Um, and a lot of the, some of the best testing advice I ever picked up was classic Unix books, C, C culture on testing um, that somehow did not make it to the big time, as it were. Um, right. And so there was a cultural disconnect. So I think we've been kind of slowly but surely getting there. And it used to be a case of like, well, what C++ testing frameworks are there? And there really wasn't anything that I felt like I wanted to recommend. There were a couple out there. But now we're in a situation, actually, we're reasonably well supported for choice in C++, which is a, a nice situation. There's still a bit of catch-up to go, but... Oh, see, oh, catch. No. See, I, I did not even <laughs> intentional. Well done, Phil. Um, but, you know, but there is a point there in terms of adoption. But we, it's now out there that these are names that you can throw around and people won't look blankly at you when you start yeah. using um, uh, testing framework names uh, in C++, so, which is you know, definitely very different to how it used to be. And, and my question to you, referring to that uh, 2005 uh, talk that you gave, you know, you mentioned there was only two of you in the room using unit tests. My assumption is that other people in the room weren't opposed to that. They just weren't used to it. They just weren't doing it. Yeah. It's not like they were arguing back. I mean, when we talk about uh, new ways of doing things like, you know, virtual functions, right? Yeah. There were people who argued about, oh, no, no, that's that indirection. That's going to kill your performance. How could yeah. you do that? And all that kind of stuff. But But for testing, nobody ever argued back. It's just they didn't do it. Yeah, it's yeah. not like anybody thinks it's a bad idea. It's just that you need to exercise those muscles. It needs to become yeah. part of the pattern. You yeah. need to buy into it. Yeah, it's got there. Are, I mean, there are certainly people that will object at various times and won't and won't regard it as being within their job role. Maybe they, it depends on their uh, their background. So uh, I, I found that sometimes because oh no, we've got testers for that, yeah, <laughs> and it's like well no, no, that's that's software test. That's your whole system. That's not the same as I have just crafted. This API, I've just built these classes. Yeah. The question yeah. I want to ask you is, do these work as intended? Not do they work as part of a larger system, but do, on their own, do these uh, these components, these elements of a system work? So some people will kind of push back against that, but mostly it was, as you say, it was it was practice and culture. And if you're surrounded by lots of people that are doing it, it's, it becomes obviously a lot easier to do. Um, you, you're, you're swept along and your your questions become very different. It becomes not, not whether, but how, and how do we deal with this situation as becomes a much more open question than a, necessarily a challenge. Um, and so that's... A, 
that is definitely, and as you say, uh, newer languages, new APIs, people wouldn't think of presenting them without these things. And in fact, funnily enough, in 2005, there was a panel on, uh, oh, back in the old days when it was going to be C++ OX. Um, <laughs> there was a panel on what features would we like to see in the next standard. Um, and I said that there were four that I regarded as architecturally fundamental um, and uh, the um, uh, one of them was threads. I said you can't be a serious. Th- it's two. It's two thousand and five. How can we have a? How can we have a systems <laughs> programming language that doesn't have a, a, a sensible opinion on how to do multi-threading? Um, you know, this this is a this is something we need to care about. Um, Arguably, we, now, we don't have a sensible opinion on that today, but I won't go in. The, yeah, maybe sensible <laughs> is a, a standard opinion. Let us let us use that word instead. There's no standard and sensible can actually be worlds apart. I've discovered, but nonetheless, there there is that. Um, um, what we would now call modules, but are basically dynamic loading. Uh, how can I have a systems programming language that does not have an opinion about how I can organize, create an architecture with dynamically loadable parts. I mean, surely that is fundamental to many modern architectures. I don't think that that's even considered in modules. They're not even talking about that. They're just talking about making bills rational. Yeah, well, I think it's got half a foot in the door. It's just getting the other half in the other foot. Um, I think it's in the other door. It's not through the wrong door. One foot in two different doors. Um, Garbage collection, because that one's always a... That that one's always a... a, um, uh, that one's always uh, sure to strike a nerve with a lot of C++ developers. But as I was saying at the time, because that was around the time that um, Herb and Herb Sutter and others were working on uh, C++ CLI at Microsoft. And, and for me, I sort of said, well, look, here you have a platform that has garbage collection. If C++ is supposed to be a systems programming language, why does it not have an opinion about garbage collection? You know, in other words... If more and more systems are going, more and more runtimes are going to have this as a feature, then we have to have some way of dealing with it uh, or even taking advantage of it. Um, and reflection was the other one. Again, a lot of open architectures are based on, hey, I've just loaded something, let's interrogate it. And this is the basis for testing frameworks. In fact, that was one of the examples I gave was I said, I have no problem writing test frameworks in any programming language except C and C++, which don't allow me to just dynamically pick up a piece of code and say, what have you got? You know, and, and, then, and then execute it. Hey, you've got a bunch of functions all beginning with the word test. Brilliant. I can do something with that. Instead, we had to have... Um, uh, we had to have uh, uh, some very um, uh, uh, clever macro tricks. And, you know, I'm always in two minds about teaching people clever macro, macro tricks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so there was that. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, of those four features, what made it into C11 was threading. And the garbage collection model is at best halfway there, but, you know, it's not really usable. And we're still not there with everything else. So, yeah, basically the 2020s. Um, C++ should hopefully become a full systems programming language again. Well, I, I would argue that C++ does have an opinion on garbage collection, but I don't want to go down that path. So, uh, Okay, well, let's save like, that path for sh- another day, because I have no gears. shortage of opinions on that one. But nonetheless, that may, that may take us off uh, uh, into the darkness, but yeah. I'm going to shift gears and, um, and ask uh, Martin a question. Martin, um, first of all, first question is, do you not pay your light bill? Uh, but <laughs> it's getting played over here. Um, but I was going to ask you how you got in with all this test stuff because uh, you're more like the mathematical, provable, provably correct crowd, right? How did yeah. you How did you get involved with with uh, 
test and specifically working on catch? Uh, well, uh, I was taking over our C++ course at the university and I wanted to provide our students with more uh, homeworks with automatic testing. So I needed some uh, testing framework that would work well, which meant catch basically. Yeah, because I, I can't have my students go and like they are starting with C++ and I can't just go and tell them, okay, <laughs> here have boost test, compile it, fi- figure out how to link it and have fun. So I needed something so simple. You, so you found Catch was a better candidate for that. But that's yeah. not a reason, you know, there's a lot of things I use that doesn't make me a maintainer on that. Uh, no. How did you go from this is the best thing for my students to use to I'm going to help Phil make this happen? Well, I found, I found bugs and I fixed them. And I opened a PR and then nothing. Ah, so it turns out that Phil has two recruitment tools. One is he promises no puns, and the other is he deliberately puts bugs in that are easy to fix to kind of catch people into the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, really, basically, I think I thought Catch has potential because uh, I was using it, and unlike, say, CPP unit, it didn't suck. <laughs> And I thought it's it's kind of sad that it doesn't have maintainer or basically no one to update it and fix bugs and, and so on. I have I, I have a very smart friend who actually has a product whose marketing slogan is "It doesn't suck." <laughs> <laughs> he sells an editor and says "BB Edit, it doesn't suck." Um, so "It doesn't suck" is actually a pretty strong uh, <laughs> pretty strong recommendation. <laughs> I think Martin's point was that he was raising these PRs, but they weren't getting accepted because at the time I was so completely overloaded that I just wasn't really acting as a um, a viable maintainer alone on catch. It was just getting too big. So have you turned most of that over to Martin or you guys share the load or how does that work out? Technically, we we share the load. In, In practice, Martin's doing most of the work at the moment. So I'm very grateful to him for that. I am too, because that frees you up to do the show. So, <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Martin. Okay, I want the LT snow. <laughs> um, so, uh, what, what's the? Can you talk about the future? Is there a catch three on the horizon? Are there features you're just itching to add, but require some architectural changes? What's the? There is going to be a catch three. Don't know when yet. Uh, Martin's just said he's going to go and fix the lights. Oh, there we go. Oh, I thought he was going to go and finish off Catch 3. <laughs> how, how many Catch maintainers does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> so it's just a small matter of programming. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, we're just talking about Catch 3, Martin. But uh, it is coming. Don't know when. But we are saving up a long list of small breaking changes that we're sort of holding back until we can, we can go to 3. So yeah. it's not really so much about but- big features, it's... It's just about the version change. Uh, actually, I thought we aren't go- doing catch three. We are doing catch two version three. <laughs> uh, that that may be true. That's yet to be decided. Because uh, the, the whole the whole reason that we're calling it catch two is uh, technically it's actually a name change. Because so many people found the word catch very hard to Google for in the context of C plus plus and testing. Uh, so uh, catch two has actually helped that. So. 
the theory is that maybe version 3 will actually be catched to version 3. So we stick with the name. Right. So that, that, that may be too weird, though. We're not, not sure yet. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking of ways, mottos, ways of marketing the, the library, and I'm overwhelmed with puns. Uh, you know, catch two, give it a try. Uh, catch two fever, catch it. I don't know. It's just, it's, it just gets bad. Um, the, the talk I did at um, C++ now a couple of years ago, it was on um, uh, persistent hash trees. And I, I actually said again, in the introduction it that it was on persistent hash trees. Uh, and I said in the introduction that um, uh, you, you can say the word tree as, as tree or try. It's T-R-I-E. And I specifically choose to pronounce it tree so that I don't get known as being both the, the catch guy and the try guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then this year I did uh, a talk at C++ now on, on error handling and exceptions. And of course, you know, I'm, I'm back to try again. <laughs> so I can't really escape it. <laughs> I uh, I was thinking as we were talking about um, about the culture that one of the things that Alex Stepanov told me about the proposal, the original proposal, which by the way, um, that's where the term the STL came from. Was that was the name that he gave his proposal, and it's it's always ambiguous because people are a little unclear what is part of the STL and what isn't part of the STL. Because it's never formally defined anywhere. STL is just the name that he stuck on the proposal that he sent to the Standards Committee proposing his library, which is a little bit presumptuous because it wasn't yet accepted as a standard. And so to call it the standard library before the committee had even looked at it was a little presumptuous. But um, what he was telling me about it is he said, you know, it was a big mistake, but it just never occurred to me. He said, I had a, a complete test suite to test the, to test the library. And I never even offered it to the committee. It never occurred to me to do that. And I think that that maybe this is something we should maybe give more thought to is, you know, when is an API complete? Is it complete when you define the API, when you complete when you've implemented it? Or is it complete when it contains a test suite? Um, because it's, because it, you know, would it have been appropriate to include the test suite in the standard itself? Or um, to, you know, to, to define to define what the STL means in terms of a, a suite of tests or would that have been an unnecessary constraint and it's better to define it not in terms of specific code but in terms of the intent and it's defined it only in language does that make sense what i'm trying to say i was just editing um not the last episode but the one before because i'm a bit behind uh, and one thing that uh, that i noticed was that you john made a point about um trying to work out the at least as a thought experiment, the dollar value of the code base in your company. And knowing that we have uh, Kevlin on today, I, I know he has a thought on that. Uh, Ke- Kevlin? Dollar value. You know what I'm talking about? I, no, no. Elaborate more. Oh, my <laughs> well, it's the whole idea of whether it's the code that actually has the value. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the, the, thing, the, the thing here is the, the code or the functionality. Um, and there was a, uh, a tweet that I always go back to from Kirk Pepperdine, a, a Java performance specialist, um, who tweeted at me, I don't know, God, it must have been nine, eight, nine years ago. And he said, you know, um, code, uh, you know, functionality is an asset, code is a liability. And I found that very thought provoking because 
where it does raise the question where is the value and we often think of code well there are those who do not consider code to have value and i've spent most of my career trying to convince you convince them yes code has value this is a good thing you know it's not just something you you, you toss off and just sort of throw there the, the quality of it does matter the amount of it your ability to understand it all of these things matter um but kirk's point of view was was uh, wonderfully provocative because it's basically said, no, code, code is a liability. What people want is the functionality, whether they're downloading a product, whether they're downloading a framework, a piece of code, whether they're copying and pasting from um, uh, uh, from uh, something uh, online. It, it's They don't actually want the code. What they want is the functionality that it gives them. People have a problem. They want it solved. People want some functionality. That's what they want. They may look at the code. They may find it educational or interesting, but that's not the primary thing. What they want is the functionality. Um, and so this idea is that's what has value. And this curious idea, therefore, is code a liability. And and uh, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It actually, it actually tells you why code quality matters, uh, interestingly enough, um, because any large company... Uh, or any company at all, manages liabilities as well as its assets. You don't just look at the good stuff. You look at the liabilities. You minimize the liabilities. You watch the liabilities like a hawk. You make sure that they don't run away with it so that the, your code base or your company is brought down through its liabilities rather than being able to capitalize on its assets. So therefore, the idea is that, curiously, code is a sort of... Um, uh, is in some senses, from that perspective, almost a necessary evil. This idea of... It's the thing that allows you to get the functionality. And in order for it not to become a liability, you need to minimize it, understand it. And this is where testing fits in, is that testing provides you with this kind of surround of this is the functionality that we want. The tests say, here is what we want to have happen. Here is what we believe should have happen. And there is code that fulfills this. Um, and that, that actually moves your point of view around um, very differently. And uh, it's an interesting thought experiment, but I don't recommend anybody go out and do this. Um, but there's that idea of if you had really good tests and you had really good code and somebody said, we're going we're gonna to delete one. <laughs> we're going to delete one of them, the tests or the production code. And they're both, let's just say they're really good, because otherwise you end up, people say, well, you know, actually, it wouldn't be any loss if, if this were deleted in our company. But let's just assume <laughs> they, these are both good. Which would be the greater loss? And I'd say it's a fascinating thought experiment, because um, it does lead you to the idea that, well, actually, the a set of u- really good unit tests that are really well formed and intentionally structured will show you the shape of what you want and and how it should work and how it connects together rather than the inside-out view, which is the classes and the individual functions. And so, therefore, the test would ultimately have the greater value um, uh, because they describe the functionality and the relationships and the connection. Um, So there's this very – I like these ideas, these uh, alternative points of view because they make you look at the thing that's currently sitting in your editor or the thing that you normally value from a very different point of view. And I still value code quality um, immensely, um, uh, but it, it makes, it allows me to also justify, this is why our tests fit with it. This is why they are important. This is where actually the value lies. Where is the knowledge? And it turns out a great deal of knowledge is not in the code. It's, it's, it's in our heads. Well, we can't really you know, keep those around forever. So perhaps maybe tests and other things, I'm not going to say it's just tests, but I'm going to say other things also help capture that. 
I think I think that that's an interesting thought experiment, and, and the way I was thinking about that is, um, if you think you need both, and I do, um, then the, then the question is, which one would you replace most easily? Yeah. And the problem would be, suppose you had a working implementation, and you said, okay, well now we have to write a whole bunch of really good tests, and you don't have an incentive to do that. So, oh, well, it works, right? But it, but of course, if you had working tests, not only would you have to create the code, but you could do it very well. Yeah, I think that um, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to tip anything because I don't think we've got a commitment yet. But um, but but Phil has been working with Michael Feathers to get him on the show, mm. and Michael is the author of uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, and in there he defines legacy code in this most amazing way, mm. which at, when you first hear it, it's like, well, what does that have? That has nothing to do with legacy code because you think of legacy code as oh code written by other people or old code and there's all sorts of ways you can think about it but but his definition of legacy code is any code without unit tests and at first it's like well what does that have to do with it and but i completely understand this because this is one of the things you know i used to work as a, as a contractor and i would go to project from project and i would look at this code base and i would know what i want to do with it but i was always kind of terrified to go in and do it because i wasn't certain that i understood how everything works and i was yeah. just certain i'm going to go in here and i'm going to break something and not realize i've broken it yeah. because we don't have good test coverage because again i came out of a culture of c++ where we didn't have good test coverage yeah there, there's a natural good, it's a it's a natural human response there's a certain right. kind of fear it's just when like, you well, have why good test coverage yeah you are courageous. You are fearless. Yeah. Because yeah. if you go in and break something, you'll know it before anybody else does. You yeah. just run the test, and yeah. it'll tell you yeah. this function is used in a way that you didn't quite understand. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and if you have that good that good test coverage, that's what keeps your code. Hmm. That's the opposite of technical debt. Right? That's investing yeah. in the future of your code. Yeah, it's, it's a kind I of in, it, you're buying an option to be able to change. That's effectively what you're doing. Now there is an interesting right. thing. I just I just remembered that there was. I do have an example. It's not that it's not a huge example of a case of where I did actually delete a whole lot of code um, uh, against some tests, um, uh, and it's one that. Uh, uh, viewers and listeners may be more familiar with um, boost lexical cast. Uh, that's that, that that we get to blame me for that one. Um, and originally it was quite a small thing, but because it relies on IO streams, which are curiously um, well, the less said about IO streams and regularity, <laughs> perhaps the better. Um, but uh, it, it, the, because it relies on IO streams, there are lots of kind of weird cases that don't work the way you would expect them to if somebody said we're going to do this round trip conversion from this type to this type and then back again via via a textual uh, intermediary um, as the name lexical suggests uh, but because it relies on uh, io streams there's a little bit of well quirkiness let's 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 put it that way um, and so i originally wrote that and then we kind of added some things and i handed over to a maintainer many years ago and uh, it was just before a release and he sent me um, he sent me the latest code and it was like 500 lines and it had more meta programming than you ever really want to see um, and I remember thinking like no this is too complex for the problem it's trying to solve so I decided okay I'm going I'm to try and refactor this code I'm going to try and mess about with the indentation big mistake at that point it was so heavily indented um, that I lost I basically lost the code you could not see your way through all the meta ifs <laughs> you sit there going like no this is too complex so what I did is uh, I had written some tests for it. The maintainer had written some other tests, unaware of mine. I merged the tests, added more, went through all the cases that we were going to add, and made sure that the tests were 
Well, his code worked. There was no problem with that. The problem is you couldn't tell why it worked, and certainly you would be uncomfortable changing it. So I captured the whole of the, you know, all of the known issues and requirement uh, requests for the future um, in tests, and then deleted the code and built it up from scratch. And it went from 500 lines to 150, um, and uh, with a, a much more light sprinkling of uh, template meta stuff. Um, at the time. But that was an example of, I know the functionality that I want. This is what people want. They're using this. They want it. Uh, they want it to behave in a particular way. So let's drive it from that point of view rather than from the implementation. And that actually turned out to be the way to save the code was actually by capturing its behavior, kill the code, replace it with something that does the same thing. And I've, wow. I've seen teams do that on a larger scale. But for me, that was a very first-hand personal experience done in a relatively short time frame. So I... I, I... I've seen someone attempting to do the opposite, and of course it ends in disaster, but um, there's a uh, a company I was contracting with had a very large application written in C++, and this was this was in the you know early internet days, not really early internet days, early early web days. And so they decided that they're going to rewrite their application in Java. And they think, you know if we can keep the size of the Java app down to a certain thing, then people can download the app and, and run it in a browser. And it, it ended in complete failure because, of course, they couldn't possibly manage to put the, a Java app in, the, in this tight of code um, to make it work. But what constantly was their, their, the bane of their existence is they kept discovering new features that weren't documented anywhere. Mm-hmm. But what would happen is either the tester or someone else would come to them and say, well, you know, this doesn't do this. And they said, what's that? And they said, well, <laughs> this. When you do this, it's supposed to do this. Same that it's like, always done that we never told anybody yeah. about. <laughs> right. And and I actually, there was, there was a fellow that we hired uh, um, from a company I'd worked with before, so I knew him really well. He was the new guy. And somehow he decided that he would work on a small part of the code which had grown basically by incremental pieces. And that was the graphics part. So this whole thing was kind of an analytical thing, but you could mm-hmm. tell it, oh, I, I want to build these graphs. And the way it had been done was, you know, we added this and we added this. And after he was finished, he rewrote the entire graphics engine and made it rational instead of uh, instead of this incremental nonsense that had been there. And he was delighted because he, he kept bragging that his uh, productivity uh, for the three weeks that he worked on it was negative 50,000 <laughs> lines or whatever it was. Um, but one of the one of the bugs that he had was um, it didn't do the correct thing when you did double overline. And the question is, what the heck is double overline? <laughs> and it turns out that um, what they were trying to do is, if you think of an accounting uh, an accounting document, you will do a double underline to indicate the end of a column. Yeah. But the problem is, the way this software worked is you would do a query, essentially a database query, and it would list all the accounts that needed to be summed up. And so you never knew which was the bottom because if it was zero, it wouldn't appear. So you didn't know which was the one that needed to be double underlined. It would be the last one. And so the way that they did it was they said, well, we'll take the total and we'll double overline it. But when he wrote the code, he had no clue what double overline Mm. meant, which essentially means, you know, get the entire cell of the value and double overline the top of the cell. Instead, he did the opposite of underlining the number. He just put an overline over the numbers. Uh, but the, the point was just, it was completely undocumented. He yeah. had no idea what that was supposed to do. Yeah. All it had was the name. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, of course, the testers immediately caught it because they looked at the output of, of a, you know, something that was done. But, but, the, but the, entire, 
the entire application was functional. They made lots of money selling this application, mm-hmm. but there was no test suites. Uh, it wasn't rigorously defined anywhere. And when they, as I said, tried to rewrite the whole thing in another language, it just failed fis- miserably because they had no idea what the application actually did. Yeah. In a in a formal sense, they didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, the, there was culture there, so they saw the problems. Uh, you know, the testers could see it. The the people doing, um, you know, they had internal people using the product to do templates, kind of thing. Yeah. And so they they knew how it worked. There was a lot of cultural knowledge about how it worked, but it was never formally defined. And I, I think they, that's this idea again, going back to this. Um, Thinking about tests from a different point of view, we were talking about BDD earlier, um, this idea of not just poking a product to, you know, poking a piece of code, is it correct? That's actually not perhaps one of the more interesting questions um, at all. Uh, the most the most common question people have when they find code is, uh, what does it do? Don't worry about if it does it well, but what does it do? What should it do? These are all the questions people have, and it's rarely is it right? Is what is it supposed to do? What is it doing? You know, how does this work? Um, and which also gives this idea that tests are an exposition of uh, here's what we believe it should do. We could be wrong in our beliefs, but at least if we try and articulate them and present them publicly, we're making them visible, and other people can go along. And go, oh, I see what you mean there. That wasn't obvious to me, or. That's not actually the right thing. Well, now I've made it visible. I'm playing a game with an open hand. You can see that. And you can go, ah, I see your, I see the misunderstanding that you have. And I find that's a really, um, a, a really powerful way of thinking about it. I remember running a workshop many years ago. It was a week-long workshop. I got people developing sort of mini products. And one guy, he, I, I looked over his shoulder. I could see his, uh, the names of his unit tests, um, the output. And I said, ah, oh, that's not quite what I meant. So I'm playing the role of the product owner here. And uh, I said, that's not quite what I meant. And he said, oh, so my tests are no good. And I said, no, your tests are so good that just by looking at the names, I understood that you had misunderstood me. I didn't have to look at the body of your test code. I didn't have to look at your production code. I could just tell what your mental model was, and it was different. That's how visible it is. So this is an idea here of test are an act of communication, not just one of confirmation. And I, I think that mm-hmm. when we move over mm-hmm. to that, then it also gives you a kind of a justification or a rationale for the ethos that we see that started me down the road of the LHR uh, proof of concept and, uh, and and Phil picked up and continued with catch is this idea of uh, expressiveness, offering somebody else a point of view. Here's a point of communication. Let me show you something. And maybe it's good, maybe it's not, but it's a lot more interesting than just it passed, it failed. I'm actually trying to describe something. I'm giving you a different point of view on the code or how I think about the code. And it's very powerful. Yeah, we had the, we had the term specification by example. Yes, yeah, well. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one thing to keep in mind, though, is not all tests are examples of specification by example. No. Uh, so, so sometimes you'll go to the to the test to see how the code should be used, and you'll see all the really awkward things that are trying to find the edge cases. And then people say, ah, oh, so that's how you're supposed to use it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so one thing I try to encourage with Catch is to use the, the tagging system to to say which, which types of tests are which, which ones you can go to to see, you know, is this sort of part of the executable documentation and, and which is just trying to really stress test the, the API. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a really good point about um, uh, the problem is, again, you need an additional thing such as tagging to uh, differentiate the landscape. Because if, for example, if I take an approach um, of writing, I take a sort of defect-driven testing approach, if I write tests whenever I have a bug, then I've got a nice, I've got a nice piece of traceability. In other words, I've, I've, 
I've recreated the bug. This test fails because of the bug. Now I fix it and now it passes. So that's a nice record of what we have learned, but it also captures that case. It's wonderfully traceable. Um, uh, but if somebody looked at all the tests that were bug fix tests, they would have a very odd idea of how to use the application. Um, so it doesn't, think- it doesn't diminish the value of the test, but their purpose is slightly different. I think that, you know, one of the things that I've discovered is that I would, when writing an interface, I would finish it and then say, oh, I guess I need to write some user documentation on how you would use this interface. And it almost always caused me to go back and change the, the interface. Yeah. The pra- the, you know, yeah. documenting it. And I, I wonder, does that happen when people are writing tests as well? Do you look at the test and say, oh, my gosh, this is how we have to use this API? This yeah. is insane. Um because it, I, I understand what you're saying is that some of the tests, no, the test is written correctly and it is insane code, but we're trying to probe and trying to get it, a, yeah. get it a corner case. And it's not the way we're recommending you write the, the code. But but are there times when, as you write the code, you you recognize, oh no, this 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 API needs to be revisited? I I I'm recalling a, a story from um, um, Andy Hertzfeld who worked on the original Mac team, and he he was talking about. Um, uh, Rose, uh, Carolyn Rose, who would come and, and ask them because she was working on Inside Mac, which was going to document it, and she would come and ask questions. And she and and Andy admitted he said sometimes the answers changed because when she asked the question, the first answer was, "Oh, yeah, I guess the right thing is this." But by you know a week later, it was like, "No, no, this is how to do that now." Yeah, because uh, um, you know as programmers we see through the code, we see the implementation, and so we think in terms of the implementation and. Yeah. It, it makes perfect sense to us. Well, that's the way you would do it. How else would you do it? But when you've actually documented the functions and you and you try to explain the mental model, you'd say, well, nobody's going to figure out that that's how you would do it. They would do it this way instead. And that's when you realize, hmm, we need to we need to either change the mental model or we need to change the implementation so that it follows it more closely. Um, yeah, I think uh, for me that that's is one maybe of the, less a, the less a, that's one of the values less a testing of, issue than a yeah a documentation issue. Well, I think I think that's the idea. Is that uh, as, as you're describing there, and I, I've had personal experience of this, putting to, you know, sketching out something. Think, oh, this is brilliant. Then I start writing. I start filling out. I write some tests, and I start to think, wow, this is quite difficult to use. <laughs> this is quite difficult, and I haven't really written anything yet, and it's already difficult right. to use. And uh, so the, the ink is still wet. We can change it, and I think that that it goes back to this idea of changing point of view because often we, we're at the bottom of the well, looking out from the implementation up at things. Whereas sometimes you want to sort of say, well, hang on, if I yeah, I will ask that question, as you say, asking that question will change the answer. And it goes back to this idea of how do I use this? And this idea um, that, you know, the examples that drive it, uh, as as opposed to the examples in the edge case, but the examples that drive it are, um, I'm trying to make something easy to use. I'm trying to make something uh, relatively intuitive so it fits together as a whole. But how am I going to find that out? By the power of pure thought, by strong meditation, or by actually trying to use it? And a test right. is your one of your early examples of usage. And so anything that causes people to question, either having somebody come along and say, what about this case? Or you trying to write something against your own code, and a test is a really good example because you get something else from it as well. You're trying to use it, and you kind of go, yeah, it's a little it's, a little, it's not as pleasant as I hoped, or I wonder if I could do it this way, this would be better. Um, and again, it sort of intermingles 
the uh, these different activities, which I think is very healthy. Um, you get to see it from more than one point of view. We're, we're starting to run out of time, but there was one other topic that I had wanted to, to go into, but I think we'll have to leave it for another time. Excellent. So, so, we, so there's a sequel set up here. Can I yeah. tell, you, can well, I tell exactly. you one story then? <laughs> can, can, I ask, can I ask a question of, of Martin first? Okay. Because um, uh, we, we mentioned earlier about uh, formal methods, and there was an indication that uh, you, you've had some involvement with that. Is that correct? Yes. So that, that's something I had wanted to, to get into as just like a compliment to, to the idea of testing. Um, but maybe maybe we can have you on again to talk about that in a bit more depth. Okay, that'll be fun. Okay, so we'll, we'll talk about that afterwards. So, John, you had a story to wrap up. Well, I was just going to, uh, I was just going to tell that I, I, I worked on a, a, a very large code base at a very large company that's very well known for its software, and it was very old. It had been released many, many times. It's a huge moneymaker for the company. And I used to tell people, I said, there's no bugs in this code base. And of course, anyone who was at all involved with the process realized that that was not at all true. But what I would say is, well, a bug is when the, uh, the performance differs from the, the documented expected, uh, the expected performance or the, the expectation. And I said, the code is the, is the documentation. And there is no difference between the documentation and the code. It does exactly what it is documented to do. Consequently, there are no bugs in this code. Um, I, I think I was trying to make a point about the fact that we had no formal specifications for the product at all. But um, anyway, we also had very poor tests. We had really, really good testers, but they weren't writing code. They were exercising the product, and they had uh, it was given what they were doing it was amazing the quality of the level of the testing they were doing um but there was effectively very 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 little uh automated testing going on most of the testing that was automated was simply scripts running the you know automating what a user would do there was you know the the idea of formal low-level tests were just it just wasn't it just didn't do it and it was all cultural it was because well people didn't do that when the, when the app was started and now this was you know release whatever it was 12 releases later and we had just added a few little you know token uh, token unit tests here and there it's very sad okay so i guess we've got some great sequels set up here haven't we Full methods yeah. some really good stuff on the slack channel of uh, discussing gc and other models um, and, and John said he had a few things. I've got a few things. So there's, there's a lot of good sequels following up here. And I, we've only still only touched half of testing. <laughs> oh, you've only, you've only scratched the surface. I'm going to be doing a two-day course on it and the oh. CPP John, so. <laughs> Perfect. This is what happens with every episode. We always... Uh... Have about two two follow up episodes for every oh, episode. Oh, it's like a Hydra. You, you, you get <laughs> yep. a cut on one episode. Right. Two two more heads pop up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. At, at best, yeah. So uh, as as uh, Phil pointed out, we are a little pushing our time. So we need to we need to wish everyone safe coding. Uh, anyone have any last thoughts we need to share before we do so? I think we should have a big thanks to the to the thunderstorm going on in the background on uh, on Martin's line. <laughs> Added a bit of entertainment value. Probably won't come out on the podcast because I'll edit that out. But just so you know, oh yeah. So hang on. At this point, we can take extreme liberties with what you might be editing out and just say, oh, you know, uh, we could we images of you know Martin just sort of underwater and you know lightning in the background. <laughs> he was he was battling sea monsters and all kinds of stuff. You know, when we say Hydra, we weren't just kidding. You know that. 
<laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, but that's all been edited out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. the video will still be online as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, we're going to say goodbye by wishing everyone uh, safe coding. So for everybody, until next time, safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.